Welcome to Abstract, colon, the future of science. I'm your host, Jeremy Ullman, and today, as always, we are bringing unprecedented accessibility to graduate research. We recorded in the past, you're listening in the present, and we're discussing the future of science. Enjoy the show. Before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of questions you can expect to be answered on today's episode. So, how is language represented in the brain, and how does it interact with other cognitive functions? Is language fixed or dynamic? Do we ever stop learning? How do we define core linguistic understanding, and is there even such a thing? What's the main goal of language? Is memory also a part of language and are they separable? Are words meaningful in and of themselves? Answers to questions like these and many, 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 many more on today's episode of Abstract. So, let's go. Yev Dyacek is a third-year graduate student at Vanderbilt University in the Cognition and Cognitive Neuroscience program. Yev completed her bachelor's degree in linguistics at Moscow State Pedagogical University in Russia. She then moved to Boston, Massachusetts to pursue a master's degree in applied linguistics. In Boston, Yev became interested in psycholinguistics and the neurobiology of language, so she took up multiple volunteer positions at Harvard and MIT. After completing her master's, she worked as a full-time research assistant with Ev Fedorenko investigating how language interacts with other cognitive functions in the brain. In her PhD, Yev is now asking questions related to the structure and representation of conceptual knowledge and its relation to language. Outside of academia, she enjoys meditation, wine and cocktails, and foreign languages. The pandemic has pushed Yev to explore reality TV, but she hopes that this passion is only temporary. And while her time on the show today is temporary, the memories will surely live on forever. Yev, welcome to the show. How's it going? It's good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for being here. Very excited. Many, many months have passed now that I've been contemplating having a fellow linguist on the show, (laughs) so I'm very excited to deep dive into what's going on vis-a-vis language in the brain. Oh, I'm very excited too. So, So let's get right into it. First and foremost, just to get this clear, we're mainly going to be talking about your master's research as you fully finish that, and the PhD stuff still a little bit new. So let's get a quick overview of what you did during your master's research, yeah. and maybe some of the other projects you did between that and starting your PhD. Yeah. So I wasn't working with Ev for my master's, but kind of during my master's. I was doing my master's degree at UMass Boston. It was an applied linguistics program, something completely different. And But I was volunteering in Ev's lab, and after completing my degree, I was doing a full-time research position with Ev. And I was involved in, the, in a few projects, and all of them are kind of centered around the research question of how is language represented in the brain and how it interacts with other cognitive functions. I can tell you about my kind of biggest project from that lab so far. Yeah, please. Yeah, so there is uh, the language system in the brain, right? It's a set of brain regions that work together during language comprehension and language production. And those regions are kind of selective for processing linguistic stimuli and linguistic input. Oh, and I and I must say that the, uh, the language system is really left lateralized, so it's predominantly in the left hemisphere. Um, Got it. 
In very few cases, it can be in the right hemisphere, but for the most part, it's it's on the left. Is there a particular kind of profile of the people who have more of this kind of right lateralized language system? Right. So there is a pattern connected to your handedness, mm-hmm. right? But it's not quite what you think. So the people who are right-handed almost always are going to have their language in the left hemisphere. And then there's people who are left-handed. Sometimes they might have their language on the right, but that's really rare. And I'm left-handed, and I was really hoping when I was getting my first scan that my language is going to be on the right. But no, it's just like everyone else on the left very, very clearly. And then there is people who, let's say, have like a stroke or epilepsy when they're really, really young. And so there is some studies showing that then your language is going to reorganize into the same regions, but in the right hemisphere, which is really phenomenal. You know, like it's kind of both, both hemispheres are designed or have this capacity to host the language network. But for some reason, the left hemisphere really takes over in kind of neurotypical development. You would think that since language is so ubiquitously used across the human race and has developed over many thousands of years, that it would try and occupy as much of the brain as possible. But is there an advantage to having one side of the brain more focused than the other? I don't know. I wanted to say, you know, maybe it's less susceptible to damage if it's only kind of in one hemisphere and not the other. But that's actually not true because the way the language regions are located, they're kind of really close to those big arteries in the brain. And when people have strokes, those areas get affected pretty often. So that's kind of in contradiction to this hypothesis that maybe, you know, like it's so important that it's located in just one one part of the brain. Okay, fair enough. Let's maybe pull ourselves back towards our in- initial discussion here about this this big project you're working on. Right. Or, or that you were, yeah. Yeah. So there is the language system, and then there is another network, and it's bilateral. So it's uh, there's regions in the left and in the right hemisphere, and they are um, like get activated just as much. And some people call it the task positive network. Some people call it like general cognitive control or executive control network. We use the term multiple demand network, and basically this is the network in the brain that gets activated when there is anything challenging that you're trying to do, when there is some kind of cognitive effort. And so what people or previous research has shown that this network is often involved in language comprehension. So when you put people in the scanner and you're asking them to do a bunch of language-related tasks, you can see the activation within the language network, right? Which makes sense because you need it to process language, but also you can see activation in this multiple demand network. And so what people have been saying is that, oh, well, maybe, you know, language processing is not as specialized as people previously thought. Maybe there is some kind of general cognitive resources that are allocated to support language processing. And so we pulled the data from like 10 years worth of data, and we looked across 30 different experiments, fMRI experiments, and we compared if uh, the hypothesis or hypothesis was that maybe the multiple demand network is engaged in language processing when you also have to do some kind of a task. So whether you have to answer a comprehension question or you have to make some kind of a judgment on a sentence, like, oh, was the sentence 
like easy to understand or difficult to understand, maybe that's when the net, this network gets also recruited. And this is exactly what we found. So when you look at the experiments that involved passive listening or reading, the, the activation or the activity in this network, multiple demand network, is almost at the baseline level that would be the baseline would be you just staring at a blank screen so it's really not you know doing much yeah. but then when you look at the all the experiments that do have some kind of task then you see the above baseline activation interesting right so language processing isn't just language processing here there and everywhere it depends on what we're actually required to do while we listen or while we read Right. But so, you know, from this study, we concluded that, okay, so the kind of core linguistic processes and core linguistic understanding, that's what the language network is responsible for. Anything on top of that, that's where the multiple demand network comes into play and tries to sort things out. Where do we draw the line between core understanding and general understanding? <laughs> it sounds like a bit of a gray area to me. Yeah, that's a really tough question. Because one might argue that there is no such thing as core linguistic understanding, right? Because, well, it's one thing when you're lying in the scanner and you're reading something and there is really not much else to do. Like, it's pretty boring to be in the scanner. <laughs> so, you you know, you're listening or reading to whatever is presented to you. But if it's a more kind of naturalistic situation, so you're communicating or talking to someone on Zoom or um, you're reading an article with a, with a very specific goal, then, you know, I think that goes beyond just pure linguistic understanding. Okay, so you're saying in these kind of boring, very uh, sterile linguistic circumstances where you're just passively reading or passively listening, mm -hmm. we don't have this generalized network that gets involved. That's it's right. It's really just like these kind of like this like low hum of activity in the more language specific networks. Mm -hmm. And then you're saying there's this distinction between more real life scenarios or maybe That's more right. complex scenarios that you find yourself in. I guess you could think of it that way maybe. Yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe something some situations that have that are more goal oriented, right? Mm -hmm. Or that require integration from multiple sources of information, right? Like, you know, I'm talking right now and I'm gesturing and, you know, you could argue that to integrate my gestures with what I'm saying, you have to kind of pull some additional cognitive resources. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I guess I, I do just want to note that I would probably understand everything you were saying, even if I didn't see those gestures. Oh, absolutely. And I guess that's the yeah. reason why podcasts work. If we had to see <laughs> people's gestures, then the audio format would never have taken off. Yeah, no, absolutely. Just like, you know, reading, you know, you can understand there is so much information in, let's say, intonation and prosody and the way people pronounce things. But it doesn't mean that, like, reading is not as meaningful. It's just kind of like a different types of the information and cues that you're getting. I want to talk about prosody for a second, if I may. Yes, please. So first and foremost, can you just quickly define that for us, prosody? So prosody is kind of an intonation of your voice. So, you know, your voice goes up, up and down. So let's say if I'm asking a question, my, my intonation is going to go up. If I'm doing a statement, it's going to go down. 
if I'm saying, oh no, you are the person, so my emphasis on the you is also part of the prosody. So that's kind of like a variation in the pitch of your voice. Cool. Mm-hmm. So Okay, so presumably prosody then can help us understand what we're hearing. Mm-hmm. And so my question is, do we see differential activity in the brain when we're, let's say, listening to some audio clip of a person speaking completely monotone versus someone speaking with a lot of intonation? Like, does the intonation add this certain layer of complexity that brings in the multiple demand network? So we didn't test that. You know, we didn't look at any experiments that specifically were looking at that. But I would speculate that intonation would maybe recruit some of the resources that are responsible for pragmatic inference. And pragmatics is something that, you know, I say one thing, but I actually mean another thing. Um, It's like sarcasm. Like, yeah, for example, or when I'm saying, hey, how are you? I'm not actually interested in, you know, what are you doing right now? What have you been up to? How have you been? Oh, my whole life's been a lie up until now. I'm I thought sorry. people really cared. I'm sorry if it's a disappointment <laughs> to you, but no, people don't actually mean that. They're just saying that to be polite. And that's kind of the pragmatics of the English language, which, by the way, we don't have the same thing in Russian. Um, oh. Mm-hmm. There is... Wait, wait, wait. What do you mean there's no pragmatics in Russian? There is pragmatics in Russian, but... Uh, we don't we don't use how are you in the same way that the English speakers do. Yeah. Okay, so, so in, you're just talking about this specific example, but there's still kind of these like contextual yeah. cues that you use. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I would think that, you know, prosody or intonation, I will use those terms interchangeably, but I think there might be a difference, but you know, I wouldn't sure. know. Um okay. might yeah. recruit some of the the resources that are responsible for pragmatic inference. Cool. So I want to start getting a little bit into the details of different brain regions and their Mm -hmm. involvement here, because we're talking about networks, right? Presumably networks connect different regions. Mm -hmm. So I kind of have maybe two different questions. We'll start with one, Mm -hmm. which is, are there particular brain regions that are dedicated to language processing specifically? Because you spoke about lateralization. You said the left is definitely, you know, more involved Mm -hmm. in processing. Do we see, first and foremost, differences between what's happening in the left hemisphere versus the right? And what kind of regions are we thinking about? Mm -hmm. So when I'm talking about the language network, I mean the regions in the brain that, that are highly specialized for linguistic processing. So when you look at the response within those regions to different types of stimuli, so let's say words, right? You see a huge response there, right? So the regions are involved, they're interested what it is, they love words, they love sentences, passages, um, that kind of stuff, any kind of linguistic type of stimuli. If you look at how these regions respond during, let's say, listening to music or solving arithmetic problems or thinking about other other people's thoughts, that kind of stuff, then you see pretty much very low or baseline or significantly lower response to these kind of stimuli. So this is what I mean by the language network. And so those regions are predominantly, or they are, in the left hemisphere for people with a left lateralized language network. You know, one thing that we do see is that when when people are presented with kind of more naturalistic stories, for example, 
then you see some activation in the right hemisphere as well. But I don't think we really know what's going on in those regions. And then, you know, the damage to the regions on the left typically causes aphasia. And that's a disorder of deficits in language production or language comprehension. And we don't see the same with the regions on the right. So, Okay, so you're saying damage to the right side of the brain doesn't really affect production and comprehension. No, it doesn't. Interesting. I wonder, I wonder if because in the UK, the mm-hmm. driver's seat is in the right side of the car, that if there's like a, like a T-bone accident, it's the <laughs> right side of their brain that's getting hit first. I wonder if people in the UK have fewer aphasias because of the driving incident effect on uh, brain damage. Yeah, I don't know the breakdown of the causes of stroke, but I think it's typically like an internal reason, uh, or not a stroke, but like of aphasia. But I think uh-huh. it's typically like you have a stroke. Got it. Um, or or a surgery, like a brain surgery. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair enough. Okay, so... so well, that would be a really smart design, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, just to have people in, in different countries getting into car accidents and then seeing, <laughs> seeing how poorly their language comprehension results. Yeah. Yeah, that, would be, that would be ethical. <laughs> okay, so what you're saying is that we can tell what regions are part of what networks based on the level of activity we see when we engage in different tasks. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I think we touched on in the introduction is that there are these other cognitive systems or other cognitive functions that mm-hmm. language interacts with in the brain. That's so right. what are maybe some of the main functions we see apart from language that language mm-hmm. systems interact with? Mm-hmm. So I mentioned general cognitive control, mm-hmm. uh, right? Another cognitive system that's of huge interest is, is memory. And I, I took a class on language and memory, and one of the biggest debates in this class was, well, if people with memory deficits have atypical language use as a result of their, you know, memory deficit, does that mean that memory is also a part of language? And kind of how do you separate these two? And at the time, I was uh, at the side of the debate that was saying, no, 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 like language system is highly specialized it's just for language. And like, if people have other memory deficits, those are memory deficits. And those are kind of two separate things. But now I'm not, I'm not as sure. So patients with, let's say, hippocampal damage, and the hippocampus is the system in the brain that's responsible for memory and encoding memories and biting together events and places and um, stuff like that. And so people who don't have hippocampus have amnesia. So that's an episodic memory impairment. So if you walk into the room and you introduce yourself to those people, you walk out of the door, you come back in a few seconds and they don't know who you are. And so these individuals typically perform really well on standard language batteries, right? Like if you test a person who has aphasia and a person who has amnesia on a typical language assessment tool, people with aphasia will not perform well and people with amnesia will perform excellently. But then when you start getting into kind of nitty-gritty or more, more detailed assessments, you can see that their language use is not typical. And so that kind of suggests that, well, where do we draw the line? Can we actually say that, you know, something's up with their language and maybe memory is a critical part or like is so important for language? Or 
is it more like a memory impairment and it just kind of manifests in linguistic deficits as well? I mean, I am aware of the fact that we learn a whole lot of words very quickly when we're young and then things start to taper off through adolescence and adulthood once we've developed a good core vocabulary. So if we're just talking about kind of accessing words in our minds, it seems like if the memory damage we have is damage that doesn't allow us to create new memories, but the old memories are intact, then there shouldn't be any effect on the language system. But now we're getting in, into the, kind of this distinction between the two different kinds of memory damage, either damage that doesn't allow you to form new memories or damage that affects previous ones. Mm -hmm. So if I've already kind of learned and internalized the language rules, the grammars, for example, in English, and I already have that vocabulary, I shouldn't expect that I would have any impairments moving forward if I was only just unable to create new memories. Right. But the thing is, is that learning doesn't stop at a particular point. You don't just memorize the vocabulary or the grammatical rules at some point. You're actually learning throughout your life and you're extremely sensitive to the variations and the linguistic input that you're getting. And you adjust your expectations and you upgrade your representations of words and uh, word combinations and grammatical rules as you get older. I think a really, really cool demonstration of this are those studies where, you know, you invite participants in, you basically train them to interpret verbs in one or another way, and then what you see is that they learn to expect a particular use or the ways in which this verb is going to be used after some training, which means that, you know, they've learned and they've been tracking the fact that, you know, oh, this verb tends to be used this way, so I better be expecting this thing coming after it. And they're not aware of this learning, you know, like, no one will be able to tell you that, oh, well, I know that this verb, this is how it is used. But people know this stuff. Could you give me a couple of examples of, of different usages of verbs just so I can kind of paint a mental picture for myself yeah. here. There is this class of verbs, let's say poke, okay? If you poke a bunny with a hat, it's kind of ambiguous because you can take a hat <laughs> and you can poke a bunny with the hat. Um, or <laughs> alternatively, you can Take, I don't know, you don't even have to take anything, but in use your finger, you can poke a bunny that's wearing a hat. And I don't remember the specifics right now, but verbs like poke, they have those biases, right? So whether, you know, when you hear a verb poke, you either go into expect to see a bunny in a hat, or you're going to expect to see a bunny in a hat separately that you're going to poke this bunny with. And so if you, if you just listen enough to me saying that, oh, like, uh, poke the bunny with a hat who is wearing a hat, then you are going to learn to expect every single time when you hear poke that there's going to be a bunny in a hat. And so people know that from tracking participants' eye movements. So when I say poke, you will direct your eyes towards a bunny in a hat and not necessarily just on a hat. But on the other hand, if I trained you to expect a hat that you're going to poke a bunny with, then your eyes will be moving towards the hat as you hear poke. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, I just love the fact that there are people who come up with these ridiculous <laughs> experimental paradigms that end up being very elegant. And I, I think that's fascinating. I also, I also love the nature of ambiguity in in that uh, sentence here. You know, yeah, I poked the bunny with the hat. There's yeah. kind of this this uncertainty as to as to what the hat is doing here. <laughs> Which is, which is just great. Just <laughs> so much fun. Yeah. How much of it, you know, how many bunnies and hats do you actually see in the real world is like a completely different question, right? But the fact that you can see this learning in adult individuals, I think is really cool. Hey, so in the last few weeks, you've probably heard me mention that I have an audio course out right now on Listenable. Crazy discount coming your way this week using promo code TEACHER60 or the link I'm going to put in the description. Anybody, anybody, that includes you, can get 60% off of their first year of Listenable. So it's only $24 or $2 a month. You get access to tons of courses by content creators like myself, including my course called The Secret Life of Words. This is the biggest discount ever offered on this website. Do not miss this opportunity. Enjoy. I kind of want to poke holes in this, though, if I may. Yeah. Because what I was initially saying before is that everything that I've learned about language rules for my mother tongue have stayed the same throughout my life. English grammar hasn't changed. Vocabulary changes for sure. So I could imagine that if you took somebody who was alive in the 1950s and transplanted them into 2021, they would sound weird. And if they had some amnesia that didn't allow them to form new memories, they would sound kind of out of date with the current lingo for the rest of their lives. I get that. But that's a very extreme example. So what you're saying earlier is that you know, depending on the memory deficits, we're going to see people's language processing abilities change. I kind of get the sense that it really does depend on the nature of that memory damage and that there would be cases where people could maintain, at least from the outside, what would seem like totally normal language capacities. But I don't want to get too too yeah, lost here. No, I agree with you. And and this is exactly what we see with the people with amnesia, right? Like you wouldn't necessarily pick up on their language deficits or, you know, it seems like they're using language just fine. But the thing is, language change is really subtle. Sure. Yeah, it's like the tectonic plate movement on the surface of the earth. We don't feel ourselves getting pulled apart, but on geological timescales, the continents smash into each other, right. etc. And people's intuitions about language or even themselves you know are can be really off so not to say that you you're really off but yeah, yeah no, you know okay. self-report I, is not the most reliable <laughs> <laughs> for sure so i guess once we're kind of dancing around all of this memory stuff i'm curious to know if you know what role memory plays in terms of storage of individual words, right? We already said that the language processing system that we have in our brain deals with linguistic stimuli, like words. Words, to me, seem very distinct. Of course, there are similarities between words. You know, I could take the verb bake and I can make a noun out of it by putting the suffix er. I can make baker. And so we have this kind of relatedness in terms of the meaning of the word and also the kind of the, the structure of the word and how it's spelled. But... Do you know anything about about how these memory processes can consolidate actual words in the brain? Are there locations in the brain where words are stored? Do we know anything about this? 
I, I wouldn't be able to tell you much about like the consolidation process. But so you're kind of getting at this huge debate in, in the field of neurobiology of language that I don't think you're aware of, but it's a huge fight. What people are saying is that some regions within the language network are specialized for, let's say, only processing the meaning of words, and other regions are specialized for syntactic processing. And so they kind of get united together to put together words and rules during online language comprehension. And so Ev's research suggests that it's not quite the case and that all the regions within the language network respond both to syntactic rules and to kind of meaning of words, lexical semantics. But of course, if you're saying this is a huge debate and Ev's research says one thing, then presumably there are other researchers that say (laughs) something completely different. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but the thing is also that, you know, the people on the other side of the debate were saying, no, 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 like there is regions within the language network that are specialized for syntactic processing. There is a lot of inconsistencies in the data, right? So some groups are saying, oh, it's going to be this region, and other groups are saying it's going to be another region. And all of this is kind of um, a matter of methodology, right? Like how you analyze your data, what kind of tasks you're giving to your participants. And so, yeah, there's a lot of debate, even on that side of the larger debate. Right. What you're saying is is kind of based on the integration or isolation of our ability to process words individually mm-hmm. or kind of like the syntax of language. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. I, f- I feel like whenever I talk about language, things get very abstract <laughs> very quickly. Yeah. And so words don't actually exist, right? Things exist. I guess concepts exist. And then we create words to be able to label them so we can actually talk about it Mm -hmm. right so do you know anything about the relationship between like the concept of something like a ball versus the word ball and like are those things related in the mind well i will disagree and i would say that words are really real you (laughs) can you know you can type them you can write them you can see them and identify them and so I would say words are really real and very useful. Um, but some people say that words don't have the meaning of their own. They're just the pointers towards the meaning. So let's say table is kind of meaningless on its own, but it points to all the instances of tables that you've encountered and all the knowledge of tables that you have, and that's more meaningful and that's you know. Yeah, so I'm, I'm really glad you said this because I think this kind of in a certain way refers back to my question about where words are located in the brain. And I guess now that I'm saying and I'm sticking to it that, that words aren't necessarily real, <laughs> it's the things that they refer to that are real. Mm-hmm. And so maybe to try and even answer my, my own question, I don't have the word table in my brain, but what I do have are memories of all the tables that I've seen. Mm-hmm. And like you said before, the language system interacts with the memory system. And maybe mm-hmm. that's how table, the word is related to table, the thing that I remember sitting at. Is that possible? There is uh, one study that I can think of, which mapped out where the concepts are in the brain. 
And if you haven't seen it, you should definitely check it out. It's a beautiful interactive visualization where you can kind of rotate the brain and click on different parts of it and see what kind of concepts are located there. I'm going to put a link to that in the description if we could find one. Yeah, yeah, it's it's absolutely beautiful. Now, do I necessarily think that it's true? I'm not sure. So, you know, what you're talking about is related to this phenomenon of category selective deficits. So people with semantic dementia, and that's a disorder of losing all of your semantic knowledge about the things in the world and people and events and stuff like that. They're, they're completely fine when you ask them to tell about, let's say, table. They'll tell you everything they know. And, but then when you ask them to talk about living things, let's say tigers, they, they would have no idea what it is, what those animals are, what they do, how they look like. They wouldn't be able to draw it. So like in the category selective deficits, you know very little about living things and you know everything about non-living things. And so people hypothesize that, well, the reason for that is because there must be an area of the brain that stores living things and then non-living things. And when that area of the brain is damaged, then you lose your knowledge about living things. But as far as I know, more recent theories are suggesting that, well, there's actually many, many factors that relate to how concepts are represented. And so living things would tend to pattern or cluster together on those factors, as opposed to, let's say, uh, non-living things. And that's how they explain those category selective deficits. Mm-hmm. Right, but so is there a particular area of the brain that has all the words? Maybe, but then, you know, there must be another area of the brain that has, or probably multiple areas of the brain that have the knowledge of the concepts underlying those words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're talking about how these, how these different concepts have these like features, right? That's so right, yeah. one of the features could be this distinction between living and non-living. Mm-hmm. And so while table and fable <laughs> are very similar in terms of like the letters that are in them and the sound structure, one is a physical object and another is kind of this more abstract version of a story. That's right. right. And yeah. so even though in, they do share certain features in terms of like their letter composition, on these other features they're completely different. And so right. their their relationship is, is different because of that. Yeah. It's just a one big mess. <laughs> Honestly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's complicated. Yeah. I'm sure I could have just a whole other podcast just talking to linguists and psycholinguists about what is happening inside the brain because there are so many unanswered questions. And I have you on the show today just to maybe help me answer (laughs) a tiny sliver of those. Okay, so does the language processing system have like a main goal? You know, I know that the brain uses up a lot of energy. So presumably, if we have this dedicated part of the brain responsible for language processing, it's got to be doing what it's doing for a reason. Like what's what's the driving force for the language processing system? I think the main goal of languages to create meaning and to exchange it between individuals. To create meaning. Wow. Okay. (laughs) So without language, there is no meaning? 
Uh, no, I wouldn't say so. But, um, you know, like I have an idea and I can maybe formalize it through language and then exchange this idea with you using language. That's not the only tool. I would say that art may serve a similar purpose of, you know, exchanging meaning, feelings, and stuff like that. But language is a highly, highly efficient way of doing that. I like how you bring in this idea of like formalization. Because language does, it does have rules that allow us to look into the world or look within us and then express things and describe things. So yeah, that's a great answer. That's a great answer. Thank you. Now, this could probably go on forever. <laughs> so I'm just going to bring us right to our final question. Final question is kind of an open-ended thought experiment type question. Okay. I want you to imagine yourself standing at the foot of an auditorium. Massive auditorium. Thousand seater. It's packed to the brim. All eyes on you. What do you tell the audience? I would say that science should be accessible. And I think people should understand science and be interested in science. And that if someone, if you're talking to a scientist and you don't understand what's going on, they're probably not doing a really good job explaining. This is the idea that I really aspire to, to talk about my research and talk about science in a way that's clear and relatable and understandable. Yeah, and hopefully I did a good job today of doing that. <laughs> but if not, you know what? I'm just going to try harder. I would say that you did. I, I really enjoy the fact that when you would bring this, like you did this multiple times, when you would bring in a, a word that it seemed like you figured might not be common knowledge and you would define it right away. I really appreciated that you kind of had that intuition about what's common well, knowledge. Well, I think not. you asked me once oh, can you define what prosody is? And then I was like, mm -hmm. oh, I should be I should be mindful of that. Sure, yeah. You learned. Yeah, I did. You learned what I expect. There and then you go. Just, bam, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Awesome. Well, yeah, this was an absolute pleasure to discuss language with you for the short time we have together. So I just want to say thanks so much for being on this show. Thank you. I had you. a blast. I Thank you. This, this was really fun for me. And I hope this is going to be like a really fun episode. I know it will be. Always is. So that's today's episode of Abstract. Right. Again, Yev, thanks so much for being here and have of a great afternoon. Of course. It was a pleasure. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at AbstractCast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.